You are listening to The World Stage, a global politics podcast from the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs. My name is Nils Naglud Shia. I'm a senior research fellow and head of NUPIS Research Center on New Technology. How will AI change the world and global politics? And what can innovators, big tech and states do to develop responsible AI technology? Today, we are going to talk with Dr. Raman Chaudhry, who this fall was listed as one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people in AI. She is a responsible AI fellow at Harvard. She has worked for Twitter, and she is a key person in the global debate about responsible AI. She recently had an op-ed in Wired magazine with the title AI Desperately Needs Global Oversight. So Raman, we are really very happy to have you here with us to talk about responsible AI, geopolitics and global governance today. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm very excited to be here. How do you like Norway? Oh, I love Norway. I've been coming here for years. Uh, I keynoted the first, second and third Catapult Future Fest so I'm uh, I'm I'm no stranger to Oslo, uh, but also Bergen and Trondheim as well, where I've I've given talks at your various universities. So great! So uh, and you come actually more or less directly from London, where you participated in Prime Minister Sunak's uh, summit on AI. Yes, I did. It was uh, called the, part of what's currently being called the World Cup of AI, where there is all these global governments, organizations, institutions announcing things, setting up things, et cetera. There's a big momentum. But yes, the the Bletchley AI Summit, which brought together 150 people from around the world. Yeah, and, and like uh, World Cup in soccer, Norway wasn't uh, part of the World Cup, this World, world Cup either. <laughs> but you should be part of this one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we have a couple of uh, questions uh, for you, Roman. And um, the first one is... Um, what is the most important ways uh, artificial intelligence will change the world we live in? That's a good question. So one of the reasons I like that question is it asks for something that I call an affirmative vision, right? So in order to build something to do good, we need to think about the good things it can do. So there are a few places we are already seeing artificial intelligence really change the world. One is in actually medical sciences, specifically things like cancer research, ALS, some of these advanced genetic-based diseases are being targeted. Genetic research is really advancing. So that's one that we're seeing. So specifically, for example, DeepMind's AlphaFold is um, a protein-folding AI that actually helps scientists do their work a lot faster because it identifies, it's really like a very complex, multidimensional, like a three-dimensional math problem. And that's something an AI does very, very well. Another place I'm actually seeing AI um, make advances is in thinking through how do we do weather, better weather prediction. So uh, Anima Anand Kumar, uh, she's like this amazing scientist at NVIDIA. She was just watching a video of her yesterday talking through how NVIDIA is creating a digital twin of the entire planet, Earth, in order to do better modeling for weather scenarios. So as we think about climate change and extreme weather, can we better predict the path of hurricanes? Can we better predict where there'll be extreme snow or rain or flooding or weather in order to protect people? So I think these are some really impressive things that we're already today building with AI. Hmm. Yeah, and do, uh, but do you also see uh, the pitfalls for the future? Absolutely. There are certainly, and one of the big topics of conversation 
of right now is the safety, security, and responsible use of AI systems. So the UK announced the AI Safety Institute. They had they had been building a uh, what was called a frontier model task force, and the task force is now changing into a full-blown institute. I'm actually joining the institute for a few months to help them set up their practice. I'm their technical lead for societal impacts. In addition, the U.S. Has, is also setting up their AI Safety Institute, which is going to be within their standards body, the National Institute for Standards and Technology, NIST. So, you know, there, not only do I see these issues, global leaders are recognizing that we need to proactively think about these issues, address them, and that has been my career for the past six to seven years is to understand the harms of AI systems, but also how to address them. But then increasingly, it's also, back to your first question, is having an affirmative vision of what we should be building. Yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, what should we be building? And that's also about uh, design, uh, responsi responsibly designed uh, AI. So... Um, uh, but but it's very difficult who will who will this uh, decide what is a good ai technology um, have have you any thoughts about what a good ai technology is well I, you know so when we think about what we want to do with artificial intelligence i think a lot about the theories of good design and theories of good design actually start with asking these very basic questions like what problem are you solving and is what you are building actually a viable solution? Uh, who are your personas? Increasingly, I'm using this term anti-personas. Who are the people that will be impacted by what you are building who are not necessarily the people you have built it for? So we actually have a lot of these answers in the design-led thinking world that we need to apply to artificial intelligence in a more technical way. So a lot of AI is sort of data-driven, right? So when we take these design concepts, what is the kind of information we can and should be collecting in order to ensure we're actually achieving these goals? So when I think about responsible AI and responsible AI by design, I think through specifically things like data collection, measurement, operationalization, that's just a fancy word that means how are you measuring this goal that you want to achieve or measuring the inputs? So for example, let's say I want to make an AI for education. And I say my goal is to teach um, children between four and six years old Norwegian. That is actually my design goal. Now, when I design an AI system, AI doesn't understand language or children or Norwegian, but I have to create ways of collecting data to ensure that my product is working for my intended population. That is the literal definition of responsible AI. But also I'm thinking through who else might be impacted. So in my education example, the parents of these children might be impacted, even if they're not my target audience. What if these children get addicted to this app that I build? What if these children learn Norwegian incorrectly? You know, there'll, there'll be a, a, you know, an issue that their parents will have to resolve. So responsible AI really is thinking through holistically what's increasingly the word people are using is socio-technical. What is the system by which people interact with technology in this constant feedback loop? Mm. Yeah, very interesting, and and um, so this is also about uh, bias in, in in the models, right? And uh, so so you talked about uh, a lot about uh, red teamings and how to approach bias in in uh, AI models. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, how this works? Absolutely. So 
as we move into a generative AI world, these models are increasingly what's called general purpose AI. So the previous world that we had been living in for a long time was narrow AI. In other words, when I built an AI system, it had a very specific implementation. So again, this is like, I want to build a language model to teach children Norwegian, so like very specific. So what, let's say, Anthropic, OpenAI, all these companies are releasing are general purpose language models. So I can learn about the weather. I can learn about the history of Norway. I can also ask it for jokes, right? That's general purpose. You can do many, many different things. But when you think about that, so as the product gets bigger, then the my personas and my anti-personas are more and more and more and more. So now the issues of bias and discrimination are not necessarily just about this narrow issue space, but it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. How does the model talk about women? How does the model talk about black people? How does the model talk about people who are underprivileged or like low income or who have blue collar jobs? How does the model talk about the Holocaust, right? How does the model talk about gay marriage? How does the model talk about the transgender community? These become problems that are actually societal questions to be answered. And this is where red teaming comes in. Red teaming is part of what I call structured public feedback. Structured public feedback is when companies are able to gather information from the public in a way that actually is useful and helps them improve or fix this product. So what we did was um, myself and a couple of other folks, and this was through my nonprofit, Human Intelligence, we designed the largest ever generative AI red teaming exercise. So we had 2,200 people come and they were asked to find issues with eight of the largest large language models in the world. Fantastic. Um, perhaps also you have an example uh, you can tell us about how this can go wrong. Uh, has there been any uh, incidents or anything like that where, where a model has uh, made some choices or given some information that has been really biased? Oh, absolutely. I mean, how do I even get started? I can get started with the world of narrow AI. I can go into language models. So we already have data and evidence that point to algorithmic bias and discrimination, which often comes from the data, right? So AI and all this fancy technology, it literally is a mirror on society. It is simply reflecting the data that we have given it. So when people say technology is neutral, that is partially correct. It is neutral in that it does not add value decisions, but the values that are already in the data will simply be reflected. It's like a child. Like when, if you say like something inappropriate around a child, of course they'll run around, they'll scream that word, right? Because they don't know. They don't know the difference. They just think it's funny. Or they'll just like, they'll, they'll parrot you, right? So AI is a mirror. And what, whatever values we build into it via our data will be reflected. So in the US, we've already had examples of, for example, there was a, an algorithm that was used to decide if people should be on the kidney transplant list. So there's you know, an algorithm that sort of is supposed to be more fair. And what it turned out was because there is a history of discrimination within doctors of people who are black, it actually underrepresented the black community in that list. So it, because of the, it, it, it did not explicitly identify, but it would figure out essentially if someone was black and they were overwhelmingly underrepresented on that list. So a white person with the same characteristics could get on this kidney transplant list and a black person did not. And that's literally costing people their lives, right? Another example that we've seen over and over and over is facial recognition not working for people who are of darker skin tones. So we can have a bigger conversation around 
why, whether or not we should even have facial recognition surveillance, that is certainly a conversation to have. But even on top of the value system of whether we should or shouldn't have a surveillance state is this technology doesn't even work. Very recently, there was an eight-month pregnant black woman who was incorrectly arrested by the cops because she was incorrectly identified as, as part of a facial recognition system. This is the third time in the past two years this has happened in the United States. So clearly there are fundamental problems with these issues, with these, uh, with these models. At the DEF CON event, I designed challenges around things like political misinformation, bias and discrimination, um, different kinds of issues of, you know, tackling like uh, whether or not the, the model actually correctly tells you about your rights as a citizen, whether or not it, you know, teaches you something harmful or malicious. And in all of these cases, people were actually able to identify issues that should be addressed by companies. Yeah, they should be uh, addressed by companies. But but re actually, what what about uh, big tech? Uh, can we really trust them to to work towards uh, the, a goal that profits uh, good AI and good technology? Well, I think right now, if I'm going to put on my hat of like a company building these models, their goal is profitability. They are responsible to their shareholders, right? So their incentives are sort of driven by that. What these companies want is everybody to be using these systems. Now, people will not use systems if they are biased and discriminatory and their output is unpredictable and unreliable. This is true for anything, right? So social media is a great example. There have been lots and lots and lots of attempts to make social media platforms that are unregulated because they're private companies and, you know, you don't have actually a freedom of speech or, you know, et cetera. You can more or less say what you want on a, on a private platform. But overwhelmingly, they fail. And they fail because, frankly, people don't want to go on a platform where people are saying hateful things. And it's the same thing with the reliability and trustworthiness of these large language models. So right now, there is an incentive to build good AI to, to an extent because it's aligned for them with making a product people want to use. But in no industry ever has industry, have companies self-regulated sufficiently. So to be clear, I, I always talk about like an ecosystem. There's the job that companies need to do. There's a job for regulators. And then there is a job for independent actors, civil society, et cetera. And this is the world that I'm interested in building and cultivating. Yeah, uh, and that's fascinating. And I think, uh, so governments and uh, regulators and states, they are in a way struggling to find out their uh, role in, in, in all this because it's the private companies that really sits on the ownership of, of the technology and uh, non-profit organizations can run all these kind of things that has to do with discrimination and bias and and such. But the states, they need to make uh, uh, politics and, and international politics. So so uh, what do you think about uh, the governments and international? What should they do? That's a very, that's a very big question. Um, so in my op-ed, I talk about the need for global governance, right? So we actually need global consensus on certain issues as it relates to artificial intelligence. Now, to be clear, I don't think a global governing entity should tackle every issue with AI. I think that there are values that different parts of the world have, countries or regions, et cetera. And actually, it's a good thing that we have a diversity of approaches to the same problem. So let's, if we, if we think about like uh, consumer protection, I live in the United States, 
which does not have as much consumer protection as, let's say, Germany, right? Which, you know, like, which is an, an example of a country whose legal system and legislative system is built around consumer protection first. But it is good that I can choose to live in the United States and there are lower barriers to entry as a startup founder than in Germany, where it might be a little bit harder to do these things, right? So it's a balance, and I think that global balance is not good. But there are some problems, and I've been calling these problems the climate change of AI. There are some problems that are too big for one company to handle, and they are too big for one country to handle. And again, we saw this with social media. So mis- and disinformation is such a good example. Technology does not respect borders. It doesn't say, oh, I'm at the edge of the U.S., I guess I have to stop here. It keeps going, and it's, it's like climate change, right? In climate change, we, saw, we, we see examples all the time. This past year, we had uh, unbreathable air across most of the Northeast in the United States because of wildfires happening in Canada. So the climate does not respect borders, and it's the same with certain types of, with artificial intelligence for certain purposes and certain reasons. So the, the job for governments as they get into this room is to think about what are the biggest problems, how can we address them, but also how do we get consensus? How do we move beyond our interpersonal issues and ge the geopolitics, right? How do we bring in different perspectives into the room and actually have a shared vision on how to achieve an affirmative vision, an affirmative outcome with this technology? Exactly. And and uh, you also wrote this uh, op-ed in uh, Wired magazine uh, a couple of months ago, uh, which had the title, The World Desperately Needs uh, Global AI Oversight. So... Um, what will it take, actually, what will it take to, to, to establish some sort of uh, global oversight? How can we go ahead do, and do that? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm uh, launching a series of global red teaming exercises. And this is, you know, a, as I join the Safety Institute and as I think through what are the tangible ways in which we can demonstrate shared values, but also a diversity of values, red teaming starts to actually be a way in which we create measurement tools and feedback tools that are actually value aligned. So what I want to do is do a series of events all around the world that are hosted by a host country or a host region that really embodies the role that they want to play in this global governance arena. So that for me is like one very tangible thing that I want to be building in the next six months, one year, two years. Yeah, fascinating. And, and do you think that the um there is a role for the UN in this? Could it be connected to, to some of the UN organizations or should it rather uh, happen outside of the UN? Well, I think there is certainly a role for organizations like the UN. So the UN is a respected consensus building body and I cannot under, I, I can't like, I cannot overemphasize how important that is. So one of the reasons we don't have shared global standards and artificial intelligence, et cetera, is not because Nobody sat down and written standards. We're actually drowning. There's standards, protocols, guidelines, you know, principles. We've had them for years and years and years. The problem is we don't have clear authority structures to say this is the thing that we're doing or these are the standards we adopt. You know, I was reminded that in um, in genetics, in the field of biological research, when they first started to discover that cloning was possible. They got together and they created the Asilomar principles, like Asilomar organization got them together, and they wrote these principles on how we should think about genetics, right, like, and, and whether we should clone people and that kind of thing. 
And by and large, the industry has, has actually adhered to that. And one of the reasons we see a lot of positive focus on you know, disease, et cetera, is because, and the reason there aren't like people out there trying to create human clones or whatever is because they got together and did this. Now, we tried this in AI. We actually have a Silomar Principles in AI from 2017, but they're just not an institution that is respected. So the role of a group like the UN would be to actually create that consensus and, and soft power, as it's called, like a soft power enforceability versus like this hard power. Hard power is like a regulation or a law or a fine or whatever, soft power actually goes a very long way. And having a trusted body or institution whose job it is to be part of the soft power narrative is actually very important. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, But the United Nations is an organization uh, more or less... Uh, Build, uh, built or based on on states, and so it, it's about negotiate, negotiating between states, and um, there's very different uh, views on technology and internet and artificial intelligence, uh, all these kind of topics that has to do with big tech uh, between countries in the world. And how do you see uh, how do you see these questions linked to geopolitical rivalry? Uh, that's an excellent point. So. One of the, the questions on using a traditional, what's called a multilateral organization, so an organization that's defined on statehood as the unit of membership, is that it ignores the fact that, frankly, most of the issues of AI have been brought up by non-state actors, right? Civil society organizations, legal organizations. And now it shifts, the, it structurally shifts the power dynamic so that if I'm a legal organization that has a special a specialization on how artificial intelligence impacts some community, I don't get to have a voice in the room. I have to go and advocate with my regional state lead to be my voice in the room. And that's actually pro a problematic structure. Um, I also, again, going back to the fact that there are many aspects of AI where it does not respect borders, right? So it bleeds over. What I don't want is the geopolitics and the you know, for example, in the U.S., there's always the U.S. versus China. Like, in in some aspects, it's a true narrative. In some aspects, it's a false narrative, right? I don't want that infecting this concept of good global governance, but it does help. It, it requires so much effort to just get everybody in the room that there's value to that. But I do want to make sure that there is an aspect of it that transcends technology. But what I will say is the U.N. tech envoy, Amandeep Singh Gill, has pulled together um, a, a UN oversight and advisory body that actually is multi-stakeholder. So again, multilateral, different countries, multi-stakeholder, broader than just countries, right? So they have actually pulled together an organization that includes academics, civil society, et cetera, with an attempt at global representation. Of course, it's not perfect. And this is one of the issues of global governance, right? If we're talking about the planet, then creating a board or an entity is harder and harder for the regular person to access, I can get in touch with my local politician. I can even get in touch with my state senator. I cannot get in touch with the president of the United States. And if I'm just a regular person, I definitely have no idea how to get in touch with some UN body, right? So we just have to be careful in what are the issues we're tackling because, frankly, it gets more and more removed from a truly democratic process. For sure, yeah. Um, and uh, in this um, uh, process, do you see a role for Norway and, and the Nordic countries? Absolutely. So um, 
One of the narratives I thought was missing in the Bletchley Summit is a human values-driven narrative for AI. So to be clear, we had people advocating for responsible AI. I saw you know, great representation from places like Singapore, where they've done amazing work in actually creating tooling implementation. Of course, there's a lot of people thinking about long-term risk, et cetera, but I did not see a human rights or values-based conversation. I would, and I think that is actually a very unique representation that the Nordics and Norway can bring to that table, bring to that room, because your countries actually embody what does it mean to have a strong social safety net? What does it mean to actually prioritize the collective good over individual profitability or gain? So much of the legal frameworks and even regulatory frameworks that exist around the world are actually about protecting individual, individual rights against individual harms, and sometimes it misses in thinking about collective good. I would love to see Norway as part of these global red teaming exercises, specifically driving the human rights and the values-driven conversation on shaping an affirmative vision for AI. Thank you very much, uh, Roman. We, we also have a couple of uh, brief uh, questions at the end of each uh, AI podcast at the world stage. We will take everything down to the ground now and, right. and, and ask a brief short questions. So how often do you use AI technology? Oh, much like everybody else, every single day, all the time. Yeah, so everyone is using it, but perhaps they don't uh, they actually don't realize, realize they are. it. Yeah. yeah. So and and um, but are there some tasks that you find AI specifically useful? Maps. I have no sense of direction, and I travel a lot. And if mapping functions did not exist, I would never get anywhere on time. What has uh, disappointed you the most, and what has pleased? you the most when it comes to AI development over the last year? Well, over the last year, um, I suppose education has disappointed me the most. I think AI in many ways is actually a great educational tool. I think it has to be pointed in that direction. Um, I'm concerned about how much fear I'm seeing about the use of AI in schools. So people worried about, oh, everyone's going to cheat and write their essays in chat GPT. Well, you know, These language models actually don't write particularly sophisticated essays. And frankly, if a technology exists that can do it, then adjust your curriculum accordingly. And the smarter professors I've seen actually build this technology into this curriculum. So I've been sort of disappointed to see that it's not been embodied in the education system as a part of standard technical literacy, frankly, right? Because we will be bombarded by generative AI-produced information. How do we make sure that people are smart? Um, and how do we make sure they, they can use this technology? I think that's one. Where I've been impressed in the past year, um, you know, I'm I'm glad that there's more and more interdisciplinary conversation. The fact that there are more and more rooms that have policymakers, scientists, researchers, industry people actually collaborating in earnest. We've not seen this level of collaboration since AI first came on the scene in 2017, 2018. But at that time, it was a very small group of people. So now it's like a bigger group of people and actually people are engaging. So, you know, I'm painting a slightly rosier picture than the reality of the situation. But to be able to take a step back and say, why would you have invited someone like me to be in the same room as prime ministers and digital ministers of some of the biggest countries in the world, right? That is a good step forward that these people actually care to be learning and hearing from each other. 
For sure. Uh, and then last uh, question, can you recommend uh, to our uh, listeners a book or an article or an op-ed about AI? Yes, and it's not going to be anything by me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so actually, I'm going to make two recommendations. One is a nonfiction book and one is a, is a, a, a fiction book. Um, it's actually a series. So the first one is a nonfiction book. I think a lot of people got started in Responsible AI in this book called Automating Inequality by Virginia Eubanks. And she do, she just does a really great job of grounding how algorithms can build in social inequity and how that can impact people. So like the title suggests, there literally it's an automation of inequality. I think that's super brilliant and really great. On the completely opposite end of the spectrum, one of the books, I, I keep talking about Affirmative Vision, there's this book series that I love that's called Monk and Robot series. And it's a fictional world in which robots have come alive. And it's actually more like a journey of discovery. But it is also about technology, humanity, and, and I won't say much more. They're very short. There's two books. Um, but they're some of the most beautiful visions of a world in which we have technology, but we've also decided to prioritize human physical well-being, mental well-being, and also the well-being of the planet. That's great. I will definitely read those uh, uh, recommendations. So, uh, Dr. Raman Chaudhry, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. My name is Nils Nagelus-Shia, and you've just heard an episode of The World Stage from Nupi. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast in your preferred podcast app. And if you understand Norwegian, I urge you to check out our other podcast, Utenrikshospitalet. Thank you and goodbye.